It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today our guest is a saxophonist. In fact, he's a multi-instrumentalist, also a composer, an educator, and a very diverse and very interesting man. His name is Dan Blake. Dan, thanks for joining us here on All That's Jazz. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's a very, very interesting uh, opportunity to speak with you, uh, mainly because of your background, your approach to music, and some of the things that represent you as not only an individual, but as a musician and a musician that has a purpose and a mission. Uh, and I, I don't know if that's a, a proper characterization or not. Well, I'd like to think that every musician has a mission. And I guess of late, my uh, approach to you know releasing music and talking about music has been one of speaking about the social and political and human rights issues that I think artists have a kind of innate understanding of. And so that's what, I, uh, what I've tried to do with this, this latest album. You know, it's interesting uh, that there has been a trend, whether it's related to the pandemic that we've gone through and uh, are still somewhat in the midst of, or is it just that we're finding people turning more and more to message in the music? Uh, and it's coming to the forefront, unlike many other recordings of the past, even though a lot of the people in our past, uh, when it comes to jazz music, were people that had message in their music, but it was never really in, uh, as I said, the forefront uh, of the music. It was more the entertainment where it seems uh, people like yourself now and other artists and musicians are putting together music based primarily on either those social or political issues of the day. Right. Well, a couple of things on that. I think, um, you know, that there's different ways to, to study the music, um, study jazz music. There is the way that, you know, you're just looking at the music itself and listening to the sound, the beautiful sounds and listening to the music as, um, as art. And that's a totally valid way to, to learn about the art form. And that's certainly the way that, um, that, most of mostly the way that I learned, um, but there's also another history, which is uh, a a a, uh, a history of engagement and of engaged activism on the part of our favorite artists. I even heard an interview of John Coltrane talking about how he went to hear uh, Malcolm X speak towards the end of, in, in the about a year before Malcolm was assassinated. He was giving this interview to Frank Kofsky, and and this this goes in tandem with Coltrane's expanding sense of spirituality in his music. So I, I think that's just one ex example of many that we can find through the history that kind of asks the question, well, like you said, the, uh, the message. 
what is the message in the, in the music that we're receiving? Is it is it just is it is it just a bunch? I don't say just to belittle it, but is it simply a a a, a, a lot of beautiful notes and sounds? Is it a lot of beautiful notes and sounds that are saying something or 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 urging us in a certain direction? And if so, what is that direction? And how can we as artists and listeners respond? Would you say that you're an activist who happens to be a musician or the reverse, a musician who happens to be an activist? That's a really interesting question. I, I think that the, that uh, for me, the music, my the lessons that I've gotten from this music, uh, the urgency that this music speaks with, and my like like my involvement in uh, as a practitioner uh, of um, of Buddhist meditation over the years, uh, and and my exposure to 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 great teachers in that tradition has only brought about really intense questions about what am I to do with this life and. I don't have any answers to that, but I would say that there's a dialogue going on for me, and it's something that I personally am exploring. Um, but it's it's certainly given me uh, a sense of gratitude and real. I'm awestruck by the work that's being done by musicians, you know, like who go and play for for uh, you know Black Lives Matter rallies, or who are raising funds for. Uh, a lot of money for causes or who are out there directly engaging outside of their lives as musicians. I, I'm in awe of the amount of willingness there is in the musical community to to uh, engage in mutual aid and help each other out. Um, these are the things that have been inspiring lessons to me as an individual. And that doesn't have as much to do with the, the music per se, although I think that it's all of a piece. So to answer your question, there's definitely a dialogue between the two fields of, of being in the world. So is this for a musician a matter of choice or is it a matter of obligation? Well, again, I, again, it's an interesting question. Um, I think that that's a um, uh, that's a question of ethics that you're posing, uh, and I believe that that realm is a uh, one that we have to come to ourselves and to decide how we want to relate with others and relate with the world around us is a. Is, is an exploration that has to happen in the personal realm and 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 uh, but from a, a, a but perhaps we, we broaden our perspective I also believe that there are moral obligations we have uh, as human beings to uh, to come down on the side of justice wherever we can uh, and to respond when we're called and I guess you know in a sense Preparing for that moment when when I am called, you know, uh, I, I I'm I'm ready. I've studied. I'm I'm I've spoken to the right people. I'm I, I'm plugged into the right areas that I need to be plugged into, and that's my own personal take on it. Just be, being ready for the moment when uh, when we're called upon to 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 speak out, to do, to act. Well, some of that I, I would assume is connected to your spiritual beliefs and focus. Uh, as a Buddhist, a practicing Buddhist, because uh, as, as a Buddhist, uh, you are required uh, as one of the tenants to sort of give back. You need to do something about it. You can't just uh, wear that badge of honor uh, on, on your sweater that says you're a Buddhist, but you have to walk the talk, so to speak. Well, I, there's different uh, views. And in, in, in the West, 
meditation is often practiced as a kind of um, self-help, you know, a way to improve ourselves and, and grow as individuals. Uh, and that's one way of looking at it. Um, and the, but the, the way that you're describing the practice uh, fits into a field of inquiry known as compassionate action. Um, and that certainly, I would, it certainly resonates with me what you described just now. And I came to that view um, from uh, learning from Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi, who founded an organization called Buddhist Global Relief, which raises funds and awareness for causes around the world or, or grassroots efforts around the world to lift poor communities out of hunger and malnutrition and the poverty that causes hunger and malnutrition. And, um, and so, you know, I'm not doing the work, but just by being, you know, I'm not in countries like Kenya practicing sustainable farming, but by engaging with this organization and getting to know some of these other efforts, some of these projects around the world, even meeting a few of the people um, and, you know, raising funds for these projects, uh, in, in, with a virtuous organization that is really truly acting on behalf of this effort, it just feels really good to do that work. It feels really, and also to get to invite other musicians over the years to take part in this. Um, I used to do these uh, benefit concerts, uh, yearly benefit concerts, uh, and, and uh, uh, it's it's been, of course, that had that's that's on hold from the pandemic, but. Uh, it's, it just felt really good, really heartening to get the response from musicians, the engagement. It's incredible to, to, to how giving musicians are. My friends and even people that are one, two, three steps removed from my personal circle. I've, I've come to meet so many interesting artists through, 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 that, through that work. So having said all of that, uh, tell us a little bit about the development of Da Fei, your latest, latest release. So the, the music I began putting... Again, putting together the music a few years ago, uh, when a lot of uh, these, this thinking, this reflecting, um, started to bear fruit, creative fruit. It takes uh, a long. I'm mean, for me, it takes a long time for something to kind of, uh, I guess, ripen to uh, or to build into a creative statement. And so that's what began to happen around uh, 2018 when I started to put together these pieces and. I was thinking about, so some of the inspiration or questioning that I started to engage in from your earlier question led me to an interest in really what I believe to be the most pressing existential crisis that captures all of the other activism going on. It relates to everything, and that, and that, and that is climate catastrophe. That issue, especially being the parent of two young children, began to really weigh on me as, a, as an issue. Uh, that seems to me to be the most urgent, immediate thing because if we don't keep our warming, the warming of the globe below 1.5 degrees Celsius, really there there is no, nothing we'll be able to do. So says the science, uh, and and this creates a, a degree of urgency that began to lead to some anxiety, to be honest. And I think that was the backdrop. You know, meanwhile fires in California, devastating hurricane such as the one in Puerto Rico, the r racial injustice that resulted from these climate, these more microcosmic climate catastrophes relating to the big, you know, the overall climate catastrophe that we're, we're engaged in. So seeing how racial injustice, uh, you know, plays out from these uh, climate shocks that we're experiencing uh, sort of affirmed a lot of the 
you know, the, the, the fears that activists have around, you know, this, this larger issue that I'm speaking about. And so that, so that's the kind of um, moral and uh, sort of moral context for the urgency of the music that I put together. Although there's no lyrics, um, but the sound to me, at least to me, has a, a direct relationship to the felt sense of this crisis. So how did you choose that title? So the title means of faith. Mm -hmm. uh, it comes from, I was reading a book at the time called um, Auto Da Fe, which right. is a reference to the, um, the immolation or the burning at the stake of heretics during the Spanish Inquisition. There were fires in California at the time, warming uh, or catastrophe, climate catastrophe bear, bears, uh, 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 carries with it this element of burning. Uh, burning is, is a very urgent, obviously, uh, kind of image. And, uh, but if I take away the, if I just, we just preserve da fe, it just means of faith. And the question came to my mind, what is it that we have faith in? What is faith during our present moment? Uh, and also the element of sacrifice, are we sacrificing ourselves at the altar of convenience or sure. uh, the way things always were? So these two two questions kind of go hand in hand. What do we have faith in? What is it that we're in? What are we putting our faith and uh, uh, and 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 are, are we willing to sacrifice ourselves for 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 the convenience of staying the way things are now? The recording is wonderful and very very interesting. Tell me about the assemblage of uh, your musicians for this, and was there a buy-in uh, on the part of the musicians to? achieve your goal with this particular composition? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I felt nothing but support and love from the musicians on the album. I knew that I wanted to, uh, I would say, I, wouldn't, I, I don't want to say the most important member of the group, but the, the one that I really had in mind when I was writing this music was I knew I wanted to make a recording with Jeff Williams. Uh, Jeff has been around for decades. Uh, he was uh, the first... Uh, drummer of my, one of my mentors, who is David Liebman. Uh -huh. uh, he was in Lookout Farm and has seen it all at this point, really as, as a veteran improviser. And I had his sound uh, in, in mind throughout the writing process. So when I brought the compositions to the table, so to speak, his, his role was one of freedom to paint on these compositions. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, with it's not to say that he wasn't looking at the the the, notate, the notated parts that I put in front of him, uh, but because uh, surely he was and carefully studying the music. But at the at the same time, it, I knew that what he was going to bring to this recording project would would so profound that uh, it, it was it was easy to me for me it was an easy decision for me to just say, 
you know, here are the songs, please give to them what you, what you, what you hear. Um, and so from there, uh, the other players fell into place quite easily because they're regular collaborators of mine. I've been wanting to do a project with Carmen for quite a while. Carmen and Jeff uh, actually have a, a, a trio of their own with several releases out now. Um, and Leo, again, I have a, I've, I have a very deep connection with Leo Genovese, who um, uh, plays a, a large range of synthesizers uh, throughout this project. He's a, a, a absolutely brilliant musician and, uh, and also an incredibly engaged um, human being uh, and cares very deeply about community and connects people in, in ways that um, I, I simply am unable to. It's incredible how the role that he plays in, in the scene these days. The music is is really uh, quite interesting and uh, it, it's stunning in, in many uh, aspects. Uh, I, I was particularly impressed with Carmen Stoff uh, on keyboards. The music lines uh, in a number of the tracks uh, where Carmen is playing is is just it's amazing, and the, it's a standout uh, for me. And I, I you know not to belittle Jeff Williams contribution to the recording which is uh, obviously essential from what you've said but uh, Carmen's keyboards are just stunning Carmen mm -hmm. plays mostly piano right. yeah no oh, she she's incredible well her uh, the solo from the opening I brought to her and and she really mastered that like a concert pianist with it's all notated so she she I mean she just it plays beautifully and her yeah her solos are incredible she's you know one of my favorite musicians that's the the prologue that you're talking about because it, it really is, is quite amazing and it seems to set the pace uh, and I'm sure it delivered exactly what you wanted from it. Yeah, so there there's a a, a playing with calmness and sort of uh, placidity, and but then there's a a noise that interrupts and you know and the question then becomes what do we make of of that noise and the, it's called the new normal. So what what how do we understand a, a new normal. This title was given in light of the COVID pandemic, uh, actually, uh, you know, because we're talking, we think it's a phrase we're thinking about a lot. And what, what is that new normal going to be, especially for musicians? What's the new normal going to be now? We're hoping that we can, you know, achieve wholeness out of the new budget that's being considered and so on. But we don't know. Yeah. And the way that it's presented, I think, is great. And you incorporate a lot of electronics into it, overdubs and synthesizer music. And it's it's interesting how you've in, infused all of this into the compositions. So tell me about some of the tracks. And let me ask you, first of all, the, the track itself is Like Fish in Puddles. How did you come up with that kind of a uh, title, and what's the backstory to that? Uh, so, Like Fish and Puddles comes uh, from a collection of uh, Buddhist poems called the Atakavaga, and 
these poems deal with, to, in, in general, they deal with uh, the, the, uh, the issue of our belief in getting satisfaction from things that don't provide us any satisfaction. So it, this fish and puddles metaphor is uh, uh, used several times in the collection. And the one that really struck me had to do with conflict, that the, all the conflict going on in the world, there, there's, there's not enough for everyone to go around, or so it seems. And we are uh, all struggling and, 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 and uh, grasping at things like fish in puddles. And that image of desperation, you know, and, and also the conflict that we, we're experiencing in the world today really struck me. I mean, I was looking at the statistic that uh, of the 700 million, approximately 700 million people that are now food insecure or experiencing acute hunger, 60% of them, that's almost two thirds, are living in conflict ridden areas of the world. So there's a direct relationship. This is according to the World Food Program. This is there's a, there's a direct relationship between conflict or experiencing conflict or war or some kind of uh, uh, um, you know uh, uh, unsettled living situation and poverty and hunger. So where did the grifter come into play? Yeah, well that's that's a a piece for our departed president. You know, there, there's a lot of factors in this, in our politics now. You know, we call them bad faith arguments, or there's a lot of, uh, I think, um, bad faith approach or approaches to the way we engage with one another. And by that, I mean, it's easy it's easy to, 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 to get focused on, uh, uh, like, winning, and it can be difficult to remember what's really important, which is, to me... That's 700 million figure, you know, 700 million people that simply don't have enough to eat. That, what's more important than that? You know, and the fact that many of those are children. So at, at, the same, at, that, time, at that point in time, it becomes a fairly simple, politics can become fairly simple. But instead, there's grift, there's grifting, there's, and then the other piece, Dr. Armchair.
was a lot of like you know armchair doctor you know that they just they just flipped it but so the titles are just just you know kind of um sometimes tongue in cheek like that you know just just uh uh reflections on on the way things are versus the way things could be mm-hmm. if we focused on on you know the big picture Right, I, eye on the prize. <laughs> exactly, and I, I, I love how a lot of musicians or composers come up with these titles. Uh, and sometimes uh, it, it's uh, whimsical, sometimes it's serendipitous, uh, but other times it, it has serious uh, nature and message to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I would think that uh, some of that uh, comes into play with the, this particular recording. What's that? The serious message? All of it. Uh, mm-hmm. So a little bit of whimsy, a little oh, bit of message, uh, etc. I'm sorry, I wasn't uh, clear enough on that. Yeah, I'd say I'd say so. I I, I mean, humor. Uh, of course, uh, I love to laugh just as much. I may, maybe I'm coming off as a little bit serious, but these are serious. Uh, you, you know, I, I just to circle back. I mean, I, the impetus for this music. Not all of my projects, you know, come out of this uh, kind of. Um, yeah, you know, I would call it climate anxiety. Uh, that's where this one came from. Um, and, but I think there's there's obviously room for laughter and joy um, in in the in, within that uh, that experience. And and that's an incredibly important point you're making. The balance, uh, you know, in the thematic balance as a composer and as a human being, I want to have that balance. I can't walk around. You can't walk around with a um, uh, with an anxiety ridden demeanor. That's not a healthy way to live. So there's a lot of self-care, uh, I think, that's important, in at least for me, in this process. And uh, and again, getting back to the legacy of jazz, I mean, that joy coming out of sorrow is is so profound and one of the deepest lessons to, to get, to, and reminders, uh, for, for, at least to speak for myself as a creative person. I try to always remember uh, the struggle and hardship that others have endured so that I can make this music and, and to, to be able to take joy in that is such a privilege. So by the end of the uh, the release or the, the album itself, uh, do you bring it back to a point of either faith or hope uh, with the epilogue, which you've titled uh, It Heals Itself? Yeah, I, I think, um, so the beginning of the record begin, the beginning of the record, uh, uh, has a sort of, um, placid piece that's interrupted by a kind of a noise, a wash of, of noise. Uh, the end, the end of the piece, uh, ha- has, uh, also has a noise component to it, but that noise, in this case, is a bit more of a drone, uh, a bit more, um, perhaps lulling in, in its, in nature. And that happens behind what I hope to be a hopeful kind of rhythmic vamp that I'm, I'm uh, improvising over, trying to generate a certain kind of energy from that.
yes, I think that there's an arc in that way to the to the album, to the prologue, the prologue and the epilogue kind of connect uh, around this use of noise. Uh, in the first case, it's an interruption, and in the and in the by the end, it's a bit more of a uh, of a supportive kind of um, outgrowth of what came before. Well, l- let me play devil's advocate with you for just a moment uh, before we uh, move on toward uh, closing our discussion today, and that's when music of this importance comes about and is created and composed by yourself and other musicians, unless you know the backstory to a lot of the different pieces, it, it, some of it sometimes doesn't make sense, if that makes sense. Uh, it, it's like you were talking about before, where you're just creating music for the sake of creating music. I, I think it's more compelling if you know exactly the interpretation or the message first and then listen to the recording, because I find that far more valuable than just putting it on uh, either the turntable in your electronic device or however you listen to your music. And sometimes it doesn't make sense. And it's like, what are they trying to achieve here? Well, I think you're touching on really a, perhaps one of the most central issues in um, in music perception, music cognition, philosophy of music, which is, you know, does sound, you know, unto itself mean anything in particular? Or is it, or is sound uh, kind of getting to, uh, uh, you know, a, a deeper pre-verbal wordless kind of vibratory realm that humans perhaps developed before language existed? I mean, nobody knows the answer to that, and people have debated, philosophers way smarter than me have been kind of debating this issue for centuries, really. I would say that, I would, I would just say that I, I go through the tradition that I come from, uh, which is the tradition of Duke Ellington, who uh, wrote the Black, Brown, and Beige Suite, you know, and, uh, and, and to tell the story of, tell, to tell a profound story through, through sound. You know, or John Coltrane, who wrote A Love Supreme, to talk about A Love Supreme through sound. And uh, wrote in the score, you see the score, it's, it's got pretty clear directions about what, you know, where, what, how that piece is supposed to go. Or the ecstatic music of Alice Coltrane, which is some, something I'm, I'm really listening to a lot these days. And, and, and on and on and on from there. There's so many examples of, of this kind of either story or message being intended through sound and and that's really the best I can do, you know, to, as an individual to deal with that question. I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, it's not that I'm not interested in the kind of conceptual question itself, but I don't think it's a solvable one because it's, it's so, uh, it, it's so dependent on, uh, on, on how we're listening and how we're engaging with the music. So I think it's wonderful that you took the time to, you know, to read through and, and think about the message before listening. I also think if someone else were to listen and, and just enjoy it for music, then that's totally fine. Perhaps there's someone out there that would listen to the music and, and just get this sense of urgency that might drive them to, you know, to wonder what it's about and then find out about it afterwards. Um, and uh, and perhaps there's other ways of listening that, that I, I'm not in control of that is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a masterful approach to music, and I, I think you have, uh, I'm sure in your opinion, uh, achieved your goals uh, in uh, producing this, 
composing it, uh, putting it out for us to consume as a listener and uh, appreciate. And, and I think that's uh, the takeaway here, at least for me as a listener. Uh, I don't know what your takeaway is uh, in terms of how I'm perceiving uh, this music. Well, I just think that the chance to, if the music instigates a conversation like we're having where we, we can talk about the music and we can talk about what led to the music being written, um, the kinds of things that, that, uh, that's on, that are on my mind and, and begin to weigh how these relate to the sound. I mean, this is like, to me, a, such an important and gratifying conversation uh, to, to have. And so if we're having this conversation um, and uh, and even one person hears it and is compelled to check it out, then I consider it to be uh, a resounding success. And uh, that's uh, something you should uh, believe as well, because it is, and I, I, I like the idea that you uh, just hit the bingo card and said uh, it invokes uh, a conversation. And I've talked to so many composers who have had that same sense uh, in terms of uh, putting their music out and mm -hmm. saying, hey, you know what? If it starts someone talking and a conversation about it, then I've achieved my goal. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So what comes next for Dan Blake? Well, right now, like I said, I'm, I'm working on, uh, well, I'm working on planning this class on cooperative platforms for the fall. Uh, I'm uh, setting up a summer series, uh, some of which will in, in, engage some of these uh, social activist uh, uh, intentions, particularly engaging youth activists in the areas around New York City. And um, I am working on, I'm working with a ballet choreographer right now uh, on a new piece um, that'll uh, hopefully go up in August, so working out the details on that. Um, and then a number of sideman projects uh, with other, other groups, um, recording coming up and, and uh, I'll be uh, releasing an album with the Senegalese bassist and composer Alun Wad. Um, so lots going on, actually. How could people learn more about you and your music? You can visit my website, uh, danielblake.net. That's D-A-N-I-E-L-B-L-A-K-E-E dot N-E-T. Um, I'm on Instagram at dblake2881. And uh, you can find me on SoundCloud as well. Uh, you just type in my name. You'll, you'll, I've got lots of stuff on there. And... Uh, that should do it. That should cover. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Dan, I will tell you this has been time well spent, and I appreciate uh, your conversing with us today. Well, thank you very much, Alan. It's a pleasure to meet you, and, um, uh, and all the best to you. Thank you, and uh, stay well, and uh, let's uh, talk again sometime. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Dan Blake. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. Visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you like today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.